Um, man, as I was just preparing this week, the word that continued to come to my mind was just the word gratitude. Uh, when I came to know the Lord 10 years ago when I was 18, uh, I had this call on my life to be a pastor, and so I didn't know what that meant, so I transferred to Wheaton College in Illinois, where I would meet a man by the name of Jackson Brown, who that year would invite me, many of you are laughing, he's a funny guy, uh, Jackson Brown, who would invite me to go to Israel, and at this point, like, I knew nothing about God, I just knew that I loved God so much uh, was this true, that I remember being interviewed for a position at a Christian sports camp, and I'm at Wheaton College, and they sat me down, and they asked me to explain the gospel, and I thought, I'm pumped. I know the gospel. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me deadpanned. But later that year, I had the privilege of going to Israel with Crossroads, and I met some amazing people, and then God would just continue to bless my life over and over and over again. I would meet my wife at this church, and I would travel up here on the weekends, and I would stay with staff at this church in their homes. People at this church became my family. I did premarital counseling with elders and their wives at this church, and God just continued to bless and bless and bless and bless and then God sent me and Mallory down to Nineveh, otherwise known as Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, we, are, we are just ministering to some pagans down there. <laughs> I have to be honest, though, I don't have a dog in the fight because I'm a Minnesota Gopher fan, so we are just completely irrelevant. We got some Gopher fans? All right, here we go. Go Gophs. Six and three, always average. All right. <laughs> But uh, before we get going, let's just uh, pray again, and then we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are so grateful for you and uh, the fact that you'd even take uh, just all the lives in here, and you call them your own, and, and you make us your sons and daughters, and we're grateful for that, and the blessings don't stop there because you give us your word and you speak to us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand as we continue in your series, Kingdom Come, through the gospel of Mark. All right, triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it right back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered just as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. You can have a seat. 
The triumphal entry in many ways is this transition point into the last week of Jesus' life. And I'll be honest, as I was reading the end of Mark's gospel this week, it's easy to feel like Jesus has kind of lost a grip. This control that he has shown on the world seems to be uh, uh, falling off. And Jesus comes into the temple in rage. He flips over the tables. He curses a fig tree. And Jesus just begins to argue with the religious leaders. And this friction is developed. And eventually that friction turns into a flicker, and that flicker of a flame turns into a blaze as Jesus is arrested, tried falsely, flogged, beaten, killed, and you like got to take a breath for a second and ask the question, what happened? Like, what has happened to Jesus? But I think this question, what happened, is the exact reason why this text this morning matters, why Jesus' entry into Jerusalem matters, because God is not out of control, the king is here, and everything that Jesus will do and has done is with precision and intention. Look at the text in verse 11. So Jesus begins to draw near to Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, and he takes two of his disciples, and he says, Go off into the village in front of you. When you get there, there will be a colt. Take the colt. Ask to bring it back here. When they ask you what you are doing, just tell them I need it. They'll let you take it and bring it back here. And what do you know? The disciples, they go up into the village in front of them. The colt is there just as Jesus said. They are questioned just as Jesus said. And when they tell them what Jesus had told them to tell them, they are allowed to take the colt just as Jesus said. And you got to ask the question, like, why is Mark, the gospel writer that seems so concerned with being efficient in the information that he gives us, so concerned with these tiny details? And I thought about that this week. And I think that it's because he wants you to know that Jesus is not out of control. He knows every little detail of what will transpire. And so do you think for a second that Jesus is going to be surprised that all of the next few days is going to lead to him being put up on that cross? The king, the king, the king is entering Jerusalem and he is on a mission and Jesus will use the next few days of his life to lay it down willingly. The next few days of Jesus' life are not taking his life. He is choosing this. And he is doing it with intention and purpose. And I want us to see two things here this morning. Because a lot could be said about this text. But things that really stuck out to me were, number one... What this text says about how God comes to us, how he comes to us, and then as a result, how we come to God. It's the season of entries, isn't it? If you love college football like I love college football, every team is trying to outdo each other with entries. Like I said, I grew up a gopher fan, so our entries were pretty pathetic. But I had friends... And one of my friends played football at Virginia Tech. And I went down to Blacksburg, Virginia for one of the games. And uh, at the game, uh, they have just one of the best game day atmospheres. And I remember distinctly the moment that my friend ran out onto the field from the tunnel. The bleachers were shaking. Everybody was jumping up and down. Every seat was packed. People had keys out of their pockets, waving them around. Cannons were blasting. Enter Sandman was blaring through the loudspeakers by Metallica. And I thought to myself, like, 
these symbols and the songs, they, they communicate something. They're not just there to create hype. I mean, they want you to feel like we are going to dominate you, right? That's what they're saying to the other team. This team is running out onto the fields, and entries communicate. I mean, everybody that has ever watched a Michigan game has the, the M Club supports you, go blue, just emblazoned in their minds, Entries are designed to communicate, and Jesus has a symbol and a song in his entry as well. He's got a cult, and he's got the crowd singing as well, and I want to kind of examine these two symbols and songs real quick. First, Jesus rides in on a baby cult, and Numbers 19 tells us that an animal devoted to a sacred purpose must be one that has never been put to ordinary use. There is intention with what Jesus is doing. This cult has a sacred purpose. It's bringing in the king. And so the people, they know this because they know their text. And so the parade of people flowing down the Mount of Olives know what they are seeing when Messiah rides in. He's going to ride in like this. They're getting pumped. This means something. And so the crowd is breaking into a frenzy. They're hyperlinking to Zechariah 9 where they can think of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem like this. They're singing about Psalm 118, which is about the day of salvation. They're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is where it gets ironic. And I think Mark wants us to see the irony here. Because they're going like, this is it. Like every great superhero movie ever, the superheroes flowing back into the story just when the Jewish people feel like they're really down and out. He's going to save us. He's going to dominate our opponents. He's going to win this thing. They're, They're laying down palm branches and cloaks and commentators say that this is representative of their nationalistic desire to be delivered from the hands of the Romans. They're getting ready for action. But... Their expectations of how God is coming to them are way off. Way off. They are right. He is the son of David. They are right. His kingdom is breaking in. But the kingdom will break in in unexpected ways. They have no concept for how it will break in. They have no concept for what is actually about to happen. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem only reiterates what his life and ministry has already all been about, but it gets overlooked by the people in this passage too. Let's look at Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, And having salvation is he. But how does he come? Humble. Humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. They expect political and military salvation for the Jews through forth. But Jesus is going to come. And he's going to save them through humble sacrifice. And this is just one instance of people that are following Jesus or who have been interacting with Jesus of speaking better than they know. When they yell Hosanna, which literally means save us, they are speaking better than they know about Jesus. 
When the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, he, he, he meets Jesus and he, he, he yells, Jesus, son of the most high God, he's speaking better than he knows. When Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he's speaking better than he knows, which is why a few verses later, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, because Peter can't fathom how Jesus is going to actually have to accomplish this thing. Even the Roman soldiers, as they mock Jesus and they yell, hail, king of the Jews, they are speaking so much better than they know. They think he's a joke, but they, he is who they say he is. And I think this is how it often works in our lives with Jesus, isn't it? Like, we come in here and we worship God better than we know. He is so much better than we know. We come in here and we, we sing praises better than we know. The words that come out of our lips are better than we know. I am preaching right now better than I know. Jesus is so much better than they know, and they can't see it. His salvation is so much better then they know, but it will require that he come in in a way that they do not come uh, expect because he's coming humble. He's going to lay down his life to win this thing. Uh, believe it or not, that camp that I was talking about that was interviewing me still chose to hire me. After I told them the gospel was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they taught me how to share the gospel. I was thankful for that. And when I worked there, I worked uh, at this sports camp in Branson, Missouri, and uh, I had cabins full of uh, first through fifth graders, depending on the week. And I remember during staff training week, they would teach you a bunch of different things. They'd teach you everything from how to do CPR to lifeguard training to how to share the gospel to how to lead a Bible study to, um, to everything. But one of the most poignant uh, 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 trainings that we had, I, I just have it stuck in my mind, uh, was when they taught us how to discipline kids that are acting up or how to treat kids when they are out of control in your cabin. And, uh, you know, my instinct is, and I still did this, uh, is to just yell at them from the other side of the room, right? <laughs> like, stop doing that. I do not like that. Please stop. They didn't respond to that. But during this training, they taught us that it's actually more important your physical posture as you're talking to kids and you're, and you're dealing with them in a disciplinary way than it is what you're even saying. And so I remember Colin Sparks, he was our, our director, he literally got down on his knees on the stage where he was training us and he said, this is how you got to be when you're disciplining your kids, they're acting up. You got to get on their level, you got to get below their level, and you just got to level with them in humility. You have to make yourself physically small and then you talk to them. And wouldn't you believe it, that's how kids respond best. I know now, I have a two and a half year old. Um, I still yell at her, but <laughs> I do, sometimes remember that moment and I get on my knees and, and, and she looks me in the eyes and she responds to that humility of me just getting on her level. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar and I'm not even a scholar in, in I mean that word should be so far from who I am but 
this week, I looked into Psalm 118, which is what these people are singing. Blessed is, is, is the, the one, the, the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this word bless is the Hebrew word barak. And the word bless is to kneel. This Hebrew word barak not only means bless, but it means to kneel. Blessed is the one who kneels, who comes. But Jesus is the one in God who gets down on our level when humanity is acting up. He gets not just down to our level, but he gets below our level. And he blesses us by making himself small. He blesses us by becoming weak. He blesses us by becoming humble. God literally in Christ gives up the riches of heaven. I mean, how amazing is that? To come down and to be born to a teenage woman pregnant out of wedlock where he will live a mostly poor life, where he will literally be raised up, learn to talk, walk, be potty trained, go through puberty. And then he will go into his ministry where he will choose a group of mostly unimpressive men to follow him. He will do things like be anointed by a sinful woman, hang out with people that are so morally outrageous that people called him a drunkard and a glutton for doing it. And then as if that wasn't enough, near the end of his life, Jesus will literally get down on his knees like a servant and he will wash the filth off of the feet of the very men that will abandon him on the most important day of his life. And then Jesus, ironically, will take the ultimate knee by going up. Going up to the cross and giving it all for us. This is the humble heart of God. Behold, your king is coming to you. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he has salvation. But how does he come? Humble. Mounted on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. And nobody can see it. Or at least they can't see it in that moment. Why is it that the world is so good at explaining what is wrong with it? but seems so inept to fix it. I think for the same reason that these people yelling as Jesus is flowing down the mountain are confused. Jesus, the real problem is the Romans. The real problem is their taxation. The real problem is their oppression. Save us from that. Jesus, the real problem are the Democrats. Jesus, the real problem are the Republicans. Jesus, the real problem is the media. Jesus, the real problem is social media. Jesus, the real problem is X, Y, and Z. So many believe that if we could just get the right guy in office, if we could just get the right policy in place, if we could just do the right sensitivity training, if we could stop these people from doing that and we make these people do that, that everything would be fixed, but it never fixes the infection that we all have in our hearts, is sin. And until the good news about Jesus coming humble and giving his life like this comes into our life, we will always be able to point at the world and go, this is what's wrong with it, but we'll never know why it is wrong or how we can actually fix it. And this is why I think in Luke's gospel, 
he shares this little detail of Jesus as he's on the donkey. And what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. And why is he weeping? Because he is looking down on a city that is unrepentant. They do not see how he is coming to them. They do not see their need for him. They do not see how deep he wants to press that message into their heart. But it's a message that they cannot in their brains right now comprehend. And so if you want to fix the root problem of sin, you don't just got to look at how God comes to you, but you got to look at how you come to God. And you know how you come to God? You come to God just as he came to you. You humble yourself. I love the gospel of Mark because you can just, as you're reading it, everything is so brilliantly interconnected. It's, it's just technical. And I mean, you guys just went through the, the, the passages that were right before this. And so you know them. There's two little in- instances. First, you have James and John. How do they come to Jesus? Do they come humble? No, Jesus, we want you to do something great for us. We want you to be our platform for greatness. Put us on your right and your left hand in a place of honor. Jesus looks at him and he goes, you don't have a clue. You don't have the slightest clue what you're asking. And then what does he say? If you want to be great, you got to get on your knees. You got to serve people. The rulers of this world, they hold and they lord authority over everyone. But if you want to be great, you got to make yourself small. You got to become a slave of everyone else are Jesus' exact words. And meanwhile, they make their way to Jericho, and here's the other story, the last stop before today's text. And this blind man, Bartimaeus, he's blind in his eyes, and he comes to Jesus, and he has the right posture. He says, son of David, have mercy on me, heal me, and what does Jesus do? He heals him. So ironically, the guy that can't see out of his dang eyes can see in his heart the way we got to come to God. Just help me. Help me. Me, I don't have anything to offer you, but help me. The ones that are supposed to get it don't get it, and the ones that can't see can see better than the disciples. Why is that? I think it's because we think that we have to come to God in our strength. But if God comes to us in weakness and in humility, we can come to him that way too. Do you see that, Jesus? He comes to you like that. But our culture right now, and I'm just witnessing this ruin the lives of young people, especially in my church, says the opposite. You got to come to the world, and then you got to come to God in strength. You are the king. You are the queen of your own life. Exalt yourself. You sit on the throne. You do you. Show the world your power, strength, prestige, beauty, performance, More money and time and attention is spent in our generation trying to exalt ourselves, express ourselves, define ourselves, celebrate ourselves, love ourselves. I mean, this is it. And the subtext is obvious. Show the world your worth. You generate it. It's all about you. But meanwhile, this pressure just just builds and builds and builds. And and this this treadmill of self-worth and identity just keeps speeding up. So it's not surprising that this belief starts to trickle itself into the church as well. Where we're like just okay with enough Jesus to get us back to like net zero guilt. But now if we've got to grow in our faith, 
If we're going to grow in God, we got to do it on our own strength. we got to show God that we were worthy of being saved. we got to show God we're worthy of being loved. We come to God initially in weakness, but how many of us then go to God and be like, hey, look at my report card, look at all the wonderful things that I've done for you. But in a society that says the good life is a life without limits, you know what God does? He purposely limits himself. He humbles himself for us. And that means that his kingdom is entered in weakness and humility as well. And this is how it's always been. Look at some of these texts. Crossroads, I know you know this first one. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These are the ones that I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. Next slide. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. This is how it's always been. This is the way that we approach God. But it's also the way that God approaches us. But that begs the question, what is humility? What does it actually mean to be humble? It is not to think less of yourself. It is not to go, woe is me, I am so bad. It is not beating yourself up. I had a professor in college that said that humility is just synonymous with honesty. If you are honest about who you are, you'll be humble. If you are humble, you'll be honest about who you are. In other words, humility is simply having an accurate perception of our own self-worth. Humility is having an accurate estimation of our own self-worth. And you know what is the only thing in life that can give you an accurate perception of your own self-worth? The gospel. The gospel is the only thing that will make you truly humble. Because the gospel is the only thing that says that you are so wretched in your sin that God had to become a human being to deal with it through the cross and then resurrect from the grave, defeating death forever. But it also says that Jesus does this for the joy that is set before him, that he does this willingly, that he does it because of how much he loves us so deeply and so desperately that he chooses to do it. So you gotta hold these things in tension. Man, I am broken, I have nothing to offer on my own, but God so loved me that he chooses to not just die for me, but he resurrects for me, and then he hands me an inheritance that is never perishing, it doesn't spoil, it doesn't fade. We have all of the privileges of the kingdom of heaven, we have all of the privileges of being adopted into the family of God, where we are son or daughter of the king. That is the gospel. The gospel does not stop at the cross. The resurrection means that there is now power that only comes from God through the rest of your life with Christ that makes you like him as you walk. And you know who is the most humble person? Jesus. Jesus knew who he was, man. Jesus did not concern himself with the opinions of others. He knew who he was, why he was here, what he is doing. Crossroads, do you know that this morning? 
Do you know how desperate the heart of God is for you to know his love? That you do not need to come to him and show him your strength. But you just got to come to him like Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's why I think beyond the prophetic fulfillment of scripture that's happening here with the donkey, it actually becomes a living parable of what it means to get that humility into your life. Because think about this baby colt. Most animals, donkeys, horses, trainers won't even try to break so that they will carry a human being until two years into their life. And that process generally takes 60 days. This colt has never been ridden. And yet, it rides through the chaos and the frenzy of this crowd, completely calm, under the weight of the king of the universe. And you know that Jesus actually promises when you live your life under his lordship, that this will actually happen in your life as well. Come to me. Come to me. That's an invitation, Jesus says. All you who are burdened, who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders, for I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. Can I just be honest? Sometimes I feel like the burden's heavy. Like, thank you, Lord. You've saved me. But now I got to go out there and perform for you. And Jesus just says, come. My yoke, it's easy. My burden is light. I am humble. I am gentle. Do you know that? But God's got to break you for you to know that. So some of you, maybe some of you don't even follow Jesus in this room. And the only thing stepping in the way of you following Jesus is you won't let him break you. You won't let him show you your need for him. Your pride is in the way. All you actually have to give to God is your need, so why don't you just come to God today with your need? And so whether you're a Christian and you've been following Jesus for a long time or you've never taken one step with him, can I just tell you this morning, this is the only way you come to God. This is the only way you come to God. The way you first came to him is the way that you will always come back to him. It's the way you walk with him. It's the way that you are in joy. It's the way that you are with God in pain and suffering, humble. Because if you want the kingdom of God to break into your life, you gotta come to God the way he came to you. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. This is love. God did it first. God did it first. You are not the main character in the story. Jesus is, and we will see that as we continue in the series, Kingdom Come, through the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is so much better than we know. He is so much greater than we know. And as you see it, it will humble you if you let it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. 
because everybody in this room, whether they do it themselves or not, will bow the knee to Jesus. Every single person, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, will bow a knee at Jesus, no matter what, at the end of this thing. So we have an opportunity today. How are we going to come to God? How are we going to come to God? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have done what the crowd said. Hosanna. You have saved us, Lord. But you save us in such an extraordinary way that it's almost hard for us to comprehend it. Help our hearts to understand that this morning, Lord. Help our hearts to see your glory in the face of Christ. Help our hearts to see you for who you are, humble and riding into Jerusalem as king to do your humble work. And help us, Lord, to come to you humble. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.